if you will, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Again, this is a great passage from the standpoint we've been going through the book of John, and we finished up John chapter 6, which Jesus called himself the bread of life, the bread that has come down from heaven. And this passage really strengthens that idea from John chapter 6, and I think we'll see that as we dig into it. So before we go to God's word... Let's uh, go to him in prayer, ask for him, ask him for help this morning. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, pray that you would be with us. Uh, we sometimes, I think oftentimes when we go to the Old Testament, we want to just see a story that uh, models how we should act or how we should be or how we shouldn't act or how we shouldn't be, and we may fail to see you. So help us to see you here in Exodus 17 as we read about the story of water coming from a rock and how it points directly to you. And so Jesus, be with us. Uh, Open our hearts, convict our hearts of our sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so uh, naturally, as we go into this passage from Exodus 17, it makes me think of a movie that was done about this um, this whole story. And Hollywood usually falls fairly flat when it comes to recreating Bible stories because Hollywood doesn't like the Bible as, as a rule, and so they like to make it look bad. But there was one movie, it, it, now it's been like 20 years ago, uh, that came out called The Prince of Egypt. And this it's a cartoon, but it's a, it's a good cartoon. And... There are lots of things in that movie that I like. I think they they take a few liberties here and there, but the major thrust of the four, first 14 chapters of Exodus is found in that movie. And in the very end of the movie, the very end, they skip forward like 20 chapters and they get to the happy part again. And they miss the part where Israel messes up time and time again. And yet the Lord continues to leave them or lead them. It wouldn't really fit into the movie, because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any logical sense that God delivers Israel through Moses, does all these plagues in Egypt in order to cast down the nation of Egypt to lift up his own people, Israel, parts the Red Sea, feeds them from the sky, gives them drink from these dry mountains, and yet they still long to go back to Egypt. No one wants to watch that. It doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make really any more sense when we do the same thing. Because we have been delivered with a promise of abundant life. We've been given the very righteousness of Christ. Yet we choose the mediocre often. And sometimes we even choose the miserable. As opposed to having what God has planned for us. And so in this passage, we're going to see the magnitude of God's mercy demonstrated to his people Israel. And how it points forward to the ultimate act of mercy, the giving of his only son, Jesus, for the remission of our sins. And so two points I want to consider as we come to this text are his love and his mercy for a discontented people and then standing in the place of those discontented people and how he demonstrates his mercy in both. And so, let us now look at the text, Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. Let's stand together as we read from God's Word. Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. 
Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. This is God's word. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, And because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So let's bring all of this together before we come to the text. We've spent quite a bit of time talking about the people in the wilderness, with them receiving bread from heaven, Look at chapter 16 there. We've read from 16 over the past few weeks about the manna falling from heaven and the people of Israel receiving that. Because in John 6, Jesus calls himself the bread of life, the bread which has come from heaven that men must partake of in order to have eternal life. And we talked about how that partaking of the bread of life was belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus even goes on to say that you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And we talked about the symbolism and how that had to do with the Passover that they were instructed in Exodus chapter 12, that they were to eat the lamb and they were to take the blood and wipe it on the doorpost so that the the angel of death would pass over them. And how Jesus was bringing all of that together in John chapter 6 because what did the people say? Well, our fathers ate bread in the wilderness, and lived. And Jesus reminded them, your fathers ate bread in the wilderness, and they died. The only way to live, the only way for eternal life, is through me, through belief in Jesus Christ. This symbolism, again, continues to track through the entire Exodus story. The book of Exodus is really just a big picture of our own journey. Here on earth, it very much mimics that as we are delivered and we are moving toward the promised land. And time and time again, we're convinced that we are our own deliverer and we want to go back to where we thought it was better. And the Lord is with us time and time again in showing us his grace and his mercy. And he's even among us right now, as we would say, just like the people at the end of this passage would say, is the Lord among us or not? 
And so that kind of sets the stage for what's going on here in 17, because they've been traveling for some time now, and they come to this place, and they're thirsty. And so that brings us to the first point, that God demonstrates his mercy by loving his discontented people. So again, trip out of Egypt. We all understand what's going on there. God raises up Moses, delivers them from the most powerful country in the world, did amazing things to see this come to fruition. It kind of reads like a comic book, like a you can kind of see this as a uh, you know like an animated graphic novel kind of thing where all these things that just can't possibly be true are true. Like the the dust of the air turning to gnats and the water of the Nile River, the longest river in the world, turning to blood and frogs coming up out of the water and just all of this crazy stuff happening so that the Lord can bring his people out of Egypt. And yet, even though the people here that we find grumbling in 17, even though they saw these things three times up to this point, now three times... It was only 14 that they were delivered, that they, they crossed the Red Sea. So three times already, they've grumbled. In the, at the Red Sea, they looked at Moses and they said, Why have you brought us out here to die? Are there no graves in Egypt? Is what they said. And what happened? The Lord fought for them. He used the water of the Red Sea, destroyed the entire army of, of Egypt. And what did they do? They sang his praises. At Merah, they asked for water to drink. What are we to drink? Because everything here is poisonous. And what did the Lord do? He made the water sweet for them to drink. At the desert of sin, they sat around and they said, Well, in Egypt, we sat around pots of meat and bread and onions, and why have you brought us out here to starve? They act like they haven't seen anything happen yet. And what did the Lord do? Gave them meat, gave them quail, just quail just appeared. Gave them bread from heaven to eat. Gave them instructions to do so. And so in many ways, think about this. What is Israel doing time and time again? They are turning from the one that loved them more than anything and turning to this other lover. Because many times through Scripture, the book of Exodus is seen as the honeymoon of God and his bride, Egypt. Or not Egypt, Israel, excuse me. He destroyed Egypt. And what is Israel continuing to do? Turn to this other lover, what is comfort and provision. Well, we had these things in Egypt. Can't we just go back and and have them? Why do we come out here to the desert to die? And this other God, comfort and provision, has found them wanting many times. But yet, in the midst of this grumbling, God loves his people. Look at Hosea real quick, chapter 1. 11. I love this passage because it shows the Lord's compassion for his people even in the midst of their idolatry and even adultery, which is what the whole book of Hosea is about, is this turning from the Lord. Look at Hosea chapter 11. We'll read the first nine verses because I think this gives a really good picture of kind of what the Lord is feeling in this this sense. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. 
they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume their bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. So it seems as if the Lord is going to just crush his people for their idolatry and for their adultery. But look at verse 8, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma, and how can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger, and I will not destroy Ephraim, because I am a God, because, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is an obvious picture of who? Our Lord Jesus, who would eventually come for his people. The tender love of God for his people, like the love of a parent for an obstinate toddler. I love the, the language there. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I brought them out of Egypt like a child. We all understand what toddlers can be like. We don't remember being one, but a lot of us have one or remember having one. And if that toddler were big enough, Andy shared with me a quote of Paul Washer, and I'll, I'll share it with you. If that kid were big enough and strong enough, what would they do to us? They would toss us out of our house. They would just get rid of us, yet they depend on us, so they keep us around. Israel wanted every provision from God, but what else did they want to do? They wanted to control him with their grumbling, with their complaining. And the people grumbled. And before, all through this, this, this book of Exodus, it's used as a word of stubbornness, almost like a mad fit, like a child would throw. Our children really help us to see this kind of irrationality. But here, when it says there in 17 in verse <clears throat> that they grumbled against Moses in 3, that word grumbled there is different. This is a word that is often used in trial language of the day. It's the Hebrew word reeb, and it's frequently used in the prophets, and it literally means to contend with. It's often used as a trial setting or some sort of courtroom kind of language. And the people are literally accusing Moses like a prosecuting attorney would accuse a criminal. Why did you bring us out here to die is the accusation. Why did you bring us, all six million of us, out here to die in the wilderness? They are accusing Moses. But ultimately, as Moses points out, who is it that they're questioning? The Lord, their God. They were accusing God of abandoning his people. Remember the serpent. Back in Genesis 3. What did the serpent tell Eve? God knows that when you eat of the fruit, 
you'll know good and evil. You'll be better than him, and he doesn't want you to eat it. Why did you bring us out here to die? Are you holding back from us? Do you have something for us? Are you keeping us from being happy because you enjoy seeing us suffer? Do you not want us to do well because you know that we're better than you? And I know that you hear me talk about Genesis 3 a lot, and I belabor the point about the serpent. But we have to see the connectedness of Scripture. We have to see how this all relates in order to see the glory of redemption. We have to see it. We have to see that Jesus is on every page. And in order to see that he's on every page, we have to see our need of him on every page. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 3 every time. We need to talk about the root of our sin because we need to talk about Jesus, the only cure for our sin. And so why do they grumble? What is the ultimate cause? They weren't getting what they wanted. They had lost sight of what God was continually doing to them. They were griping while they were reaping in the harvest every day. Can you imagine that? That morning while they were complaining about water, they went out and got bread on the ground that just appeared out of nowhere. They wanted sovereignty over their situation personally, and they knew what was best. They thought that if they could just go back to Egypt, that they would wait for what God had in store for them later. They were accusing God. They wanted to put him on trial for the crimes against them. And it should really point to us why we grumble as well. Because we easily slip into this same mode. What is Satan, one of Satan's most effective tools in the war against God's people? Doubt. Discouragement. And if he can use our, our circumstances, whatever they might be, to create these things, he definitely will. And he's been doing that since Eve. However, we don't even need Satan to do this because of the sinful pattern of grumbling and complaining in our own lives. We do this all the time. But we are not to test God in these things. Turn to Psalm 95. We read from that this morning. We're going to read the second half of that psalm. Psalm 95. Let's look at verses 7 through 11. We'll pick up where we left off this morning in the call to worship. 95, 7 through 11. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. This is what we're talking about today. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. These people didn't get to go into the promised land because they doubted and they complained. We'll turn to Hebrew chapter, Hebrews chapter 3. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 3. And look there at verses 7 through 11. 
to be familiar. We just read it. It's quoting directly from Psalm 95. And this and the, the writer of the Hebrews, or writer of this, this uh, letter to the Hebrews, is quoting from this very, very passage. And he says, Take care, look at verse 12, Take care lest there be any of you of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in, in any of you an evil heart, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So why is it that we do these things? Why is it that we grumble and we complain like they did here in Massa and Meribah? Because we have this evil, unbelieving heart. We have this struggle within us that the desire to do good, the desire to want the things of Christ, but yet we also have this struggle, the desire to do for ourselves. The desire to do what we think is right. And this is the constant struggle that we struggle with. We struggle with belief and unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's this constant struggle in the life of the believer that would cause us to grumble against him. And that's why we do it. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. You could probably just keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 10 because we'll be, we'll be there again. And he goes through this passage. Look at, um, we'll just just read from the beginning. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank the spiritual rock that followed from them, and the rock was Christ. We'll get to that momentarily. Nevertheless, with them, or with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. These things took place that we might not desire evil. As they did. Why does the Lord present us with situations like this, where we doubt and where we struggle? Why does the Lord present us with situations that would cause us to be discouraged? So that we might not desire evil, as they did. How are we to cope with life's struggles? We may not be starving or thirsty, thanks be to God, but to varying degrees we know struggle and hardship. And we want to just look at the Lord sometimes. We want to say, why is this? If you've really delivered us, then why haven't you delivered us? Why am I sick? Why do I struggle? Why do kids get sick? Why do people have to die? Why do we have blizzards? Why do we have hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes? Why does anything bad happen if you're so good? Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. I know we're flipping around a lot, but it's just sometimes a good thing. It's always a good thing. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 
the whole commandment, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers. This is the Lord after that's happened, after these people complained and he's going to give these people the land. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God led those led you those 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger. He let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Get this, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Why does he do this? So we might be humbled. So we will know that we don't live by bread and quail and water from the rock. We don't live by these things, but we live alone by the word of the Lord. And when when we don't... or when we don't do that, when we aren't humbled, when we don't have the strength to endure, what does he do for us anyway? He gives us mercy. He gives us grace, just like he's going to do for these people there in Meribah. We're going to get ready to read about, and that brings us to our next point. God demonstrates his mercy by standing in the place for his people. So look at verse. Look in Exodus 17 again. Verse 4. So Moses cried to the people, or to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me, he says. What shall I do with them? They're ready to kill me. He stood condemned by his people. Again, ultimately they were condemning the Lord. But as God's representative, Moses possibly could have lost his life here. Guilty of no crime, but standing trial nonetheless. Guilty of no crime but standing trial nonetheless. Once you see this, what did he need? He needed a substitute. He needed someone to stand in his place. Even though he wasn't guilty, he was standing trial nonetheless. What does the Lord give them? He gives the people their wish. He says, take with you the elders. Anytime you see this in Scripture... This is they're, they're being called as witnesses to the trial. They're being called as official witnesses to come and see. Take, your, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. This is the very staff that the Lord used to judge Egypt just a few months before. What does it represent to the people? It represents authority. It represents judgment. It represents wrath. It represents condemnation. And what does he say then? Behold, verse 6, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. The Lord stands before them on the rock. He stands before the people all through Scripture especially in the context of any kind of legal proceedings, which God is constantly accusing the people. What is he doing? The people stand before the Lord, and they usually stand accused, because they're guilty every time. But in this trial, what is the Lord doing? 
He's taking the place of the accused. He's taking the place of his servant Moses and takes the strike from the staff himself. The Lord identifies himself with the rock. And Moses strikes the rock with his rod of judgment, with this rod of authority. Though God isn't guilty of anything, he bears the judgment for the people. And what do we get, or what do they get in return? The blessing of life-giving water. Though the people were disgusting in their complaining and their whining, the Lord in his mercy provides them with exactly what they need. Hopefully you're seeing what's going on here. This is the perfect picture of Jesus Christ in the pages of the Old Testament. There he was, among his covenant people, all the way back there in in the book of Exodus, loving his stubborn and obstinate people the same way he loves his stubborn and obstinate people today. And Paul puts it very plain for us there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Go back there real quick. And I want you to read that again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. The water from the rock points forward to the one who would be able to provide water for us. The kind of water that we drink and we are never thirsty again. Remember Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. How wonderful is his love for his people. He sought us even when we weren't seeking him. Right? And he brought us to himself because we weren't able to bring ourselves to him. Even while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And it's because of his death that we can have life. Look at verses 6 through 12 there in 1 Corinthians 10. Let's keep going. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And look at these look at these things that happen. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. They got what they deserved, these people did. They complained, they grumbled against the living God, and they got what they deserved. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. And look at verse 12 in particular, because this is for us, because we think we're better than these people in Exodus. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Therefore, anyone who stands, thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. Because do not think for a minute that this text isn't about you. Because if you'd have been there at Meribah, we probably would have been complaining as well. Don't think for a minute that we have it figured out. 
because we're going to be the ones that fall next. Because if we did have it figured out, if we weren't capable of falling like these people, then we wouldn't need Jesus. And if you think that's you that places you among the Pharisees, the one that he was yelling at all the time. And so what, what instructions does Paul give us? Look at 13 and 14, 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will let and he will not let you and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And Paul gives us a good way of escape here. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What should we do? Flee. This is our way out. Run away. The desire that seeks to be in control, to know your own situation, and want control over all these uncontrollable things in our lives, run away from that. Because it's not from God. Because who is in control? God is in control. He has the authority. He is our Lord. He will bring us through to the other side. We will face trials. We will see adversity. But what's on the other side? Where did they get to go and what did they get to see? The promised land. What does Jesus tell us? In my Father's house are many rooms and I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's doing that even now. What is on the other side of this exodus that we walk even now? The promised land. Life eternal with him. Do we know that? Do you know that? Do you stand accused and need a substitute? Do you stand and accuse God? If you don't have the rock, Jesus Christ, you'll stand before a righteous God and he will demand retribution. and You'll spend an eternity paying for it in a horrible place called hell. So if that's you, if you stand and accuse God rather than have him stand in your place, Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved. Flee from idolatry. But for us, the people of God, Israel commemorated their foolishness by naming this place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling that day, which is Massa or Meribah, and because of testing the Lord and saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Which is kind of a rhetorical question, because what does the Lord tell us? I will be with you always, even until the end of the earth. Because we can look back over the course of our lives, and we can see those times when Christ was right there. Though we are looking for our own way and for our own answer, quarreling with and testing the Lord. Maybe all we have to show for it, sometimes, is our own foolishness. Because every time... The Lord shows us that he's never left us. Christ was there with Moses, with the people of Israel in the wilderness, and he is still here with his people today, brothers and sisters. And he's not leaving us, and he's not forsaking us. And so let us strive together. As it says in Hebrews chapter 3 there, let us strive together, together. Exhort every, or exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Let us not be deceived by our own sinfulness. Let us encourage one another toward that end and turn us turn instead to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for this very clear picture of you in the book of Exodus because that is what we do even now. We don't walk through a desert. We didn't see you split the Red Sea or send frogs and bugs upon a nation. But we look back and we see the cross. We see what you've done for us so that we wouldn't have to do it. And Lord, we look forward to the promised land. But as we travel, as we go through this earth and this life, Lord, help us not to grumble. Help us not to accuse you. Help us to stand together as your people, your church, arm in arm as we travel together. Encourage one another. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.